Something That Endures, a Dharma talk by Venerable Ajahn Anand. Consider this thing we call me, this body, made up of the four elements of earth, water, fire, and air. Whatever has the characteristic of hardness, such as bones, hair, nails, teeth, and skin, all of this is the earth element. The liquids in the body, the blood, this is the water element. That which helps to digest food and keep the body warm is the fire element. And then there's the air element, the breath going in and out, the winds in the body. Contemplating on a deeper level, what we have are particles of matter. According to what we've learned from science, there are neutrons, protons, and electrons which join together to make a single atom. And when multiple atoms come together, they appear to us as a body. Now if our mind is tranquil and refined, we'll be able to investigate this. When we're able to divide the elemental properties in this way, we'll see the emptiness of this body. It's not a being, a person, or a self. Simply a conglomeration of elements. And similarly, all inanimate objects, for example this hall we're sitting in, or a tree, or a mountain, are only particles. Broken down far enough, all there is to be found is emptiness. It's this characteristic of clustering together which obscures seeing the anatta in things. Anatta means not-self. When various parts have gathered together and are viewed as a whole, we will see them as atta, as a self. This is when the sense of self arises. The Buddha demonstrated this to the five ascetics in the Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristic of not-self, when he asked, Is this form permanent or impermanent? Feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, are they stable and lasting? In other words, are they likely to remain forever? No, Lord, answered the five ascetics. They're impermanent. In anything that's impermanent, that's subject to change, that cannot endure, is unsatisfactory, right? The five ascetics reflected and understood that anything which is subject to continuous change is dukkha. Dukkha means unable to endure. When something is unenduring, it's dukkha. It has instability as its nature and cannot be made otherwise. The Buddha continued, asking. So then form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, can these be taken as a self? And the five ascetics, led by the venerable Anya Kodanya, contemplated this and saw that they're not a self, because there is nothing there which will obey our commands. There's only arising, existing, and ceasing. When we see conventions as they really are, Right here is where the mind will be able to attain to freedom from all forms of defilement. So you see, the essence of the Buddha's teaching is to bring about the arising of wisdom within us. Ajahnja taught that that which will give rise to wisdom are just these themes of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. We need to investigate those things which we're attaching to as me and myself to allow us to see that they are in fact not a self.
form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. We attach to these as me or mine, as beings, people, or selves, supposing that we are this or that, wanting to be this or that, on and on to no end. But if we can see the self as not-self, it can be said that we have seen the true self. Or this could be called seeing the Dharma, which is the same as seeing the Buddha. Some monks who stayed close to the Buddha, even if they were to hold on to his robe, still didn't see the Tathagata, the Buddha said. All they saw was the physical body, the grouping of earth, water, fire and air. But they couldn't see the real Buddha. To see the real Buddha, one must see the Dharma. As we come to see the Buddha, to see the truth or the Dharma, the defilements would decrease naturally. Sakaya Ditti, or personality view, will gradually be eliminated until our understanding is perfectly clear. The mind can then enter the stream of Nibbana. That is, one cannot fall back to lower realms of birth. When the truth is seen, the mind will be beyond the world, Lokutara. Yes, there's still some greed, anger, and delusion in the mind, but it has more mindfulness than before. One has greater control over the mind than before. Right here is the beginning of true goodness, which all of us monks and lay practitioners can reach through our practice. If our contemplation frequently gives rise to wisdom, then it won't be difficult. Do it a lot. Develop it well. When we put forth effort to practice, we can make the mind peaceful by contemplating. If we contemplate mental impressions which gain entry at the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind, we'll see that they're impermanent and uncertain. Or we can contemplate the impermanence and uncertainty of this physical body. It's a collection of transient properties, a collection of dukkha, a collection of anatta. There's no self which can be found there. Using wisdom in this way can lead to samadhi, a state of tranquility. Once the mind has been calmed, we can investigate again. Profound understanding may then arise, seeing that this body and mind are really not a self. When it's seen the emptiness of all phenomena, the mind will be able to let go. So we keep an eye on the mental impressions, which we've seen as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self, relating to them without attachment. In the Zen tradition, they teach this with a simile of a mirror covered in fine particles of dust. Equipped with mindfulness, we apply ourselves to steady wiping it clean. But later on, by contemplating the mirror, or the mind, that is, we see that there's no self there at all. So we let go completely. If there's no mirror, there's nothing for the dust to attach to. In the same way, when we see that the mind is not us, What's there for the mental impressions to stick to? It's anatta. This is how it's done. When we've progressed on the path, then we can one day arrive at the core of the Buddha's teachings. So keep on practicing. Practice in order to see conventional reality, as it actually is. Ajahn Chah would often give the following example. We can take a glass and call it keo nam in Thai. In the Pali language, we would refer to it differently. 
in Chinese, in Hindi, in English. It's called something different still. Because actually, there is no glass. It's just elements that humans have brought together in a certain way to produce this thing. If the elements are pulled apart again, then it isn't there. It's empty. This is what's meant by convention. But we firmly cling to these things as if they are real. If somebody calls the glass a chamber pot, it disturbs us. Please hand me that chamber pot, someone says, and we feel like, that's not a chamber pot, that's a glass. But these are only conventions. If we really contemplate these things, the heart will be released. We will realize that until now, we had never fully understood the truth. In reality, there isn't anything there. When we understand the truth, the heart becomes bright and clear. It's as if the heart, fooled by conventions for so long, has been turned upright. It's been liberated from attachment, realizing that all the things of this world, including this body and mind, are without any abiding essence of self. It's just not correct to take them as a self. According to conventions, one may say there is a self, but one knows that it's not true. When it's like this, one has seen the Buddha. This is how Lumpur Tongrat would teach his disciples. Out walking through the country on one occasion, he and some of his monks passed by a couple of water buffaloes. Afterwards, he asked the monks, Did you see those female buffaloes there? And one of his disciples said, But those weren't females, sir. They were males. So Lumpur said, They were females. And the disciple began to argue until he was red in the face, because he had seen for sure that they were males. He saw it with his own eyes. The teacher is surely mistaken. I'm definitely correct. He had seen it right, for sure. The disciple let his mindfulness lapse and got more and more entangled in conventions and self, until Lumpur Dongrat said, Hey, are there really such things as male and female buffaloes? Who's the one who sees them? Is there a me? He went on asking until the monk regained his mindfulness and realized, ah, the master is teaching the Dhamma. He's leading us to see in terms of ultimate truth that there is no real self. There are no animals or people, no self, no me or them. At first we become stuck on the idea of buffaloes. And once there are buffaloes, then there follows what gender, what color, how big is it? all the time getting more and more deluded. In truth, there aren't any of these things. They're all conventions. Ajahn Chah gave the example of a duck and a chicken. Presently, we say that a duck goes quack-quack, and a chicken goes cluck-cluck. But if it happened that they had called ducks chickens and chickens ducks, then presently we would call that which goes quack-quack a chicken, and would be calling our chickens ducks. Our mutual understanding is just based on conventions. In actuality, it's not correct. These are simply labels which we have come to use when referring to things. But the mind takes these conventions to be real and clings to them as such, that there are animals and people and selves. Attachment is born, which is the cause for the arising of suffering. We need to really investigate this. When you allow the heart to see the truth, it can then arrive at emptiness.
lead the heart to see that everything is empty. The Buddha said, Moggaraja, look on the world as empty and death's king will not be able to find you. Death's king here is Dukkha, and if we view the world in this way, it won't reach us. Please contemplate this and practice so as to see the conventions and supposition in all material things. These things are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and without self, constantly deteriorating and breaking apart. Like this meditation hall, which we've just expanded, it's all finished and ready for use, and it's already breaking down. Since we can't see this yet with our eyes, we need to use our internal eye, the heart. Through contemplating this, we can see that these particles of matter have come together temporarily and are deteriorating all the time. Our experiences of feeling, perception, thinking and consciousness arise, remain for a while, and then cease. They're not who we are. For the eye to see objects, there must be light. If the eye is functioning, it will receive the reflection of the object. If there's no object, or if there's no light, or if there is an object and light, but the vision faculty is impaired, then this won't take place. One will not experience what we call seeing. Whether it's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, or touching, we can observe that these rely on processes that need multiple conditions take place in order for us to experience them. For one who is blind, there is no seeing. For one who is deaf, there is no hearing. In other words, the consciousness which would normally arise is obstructed from arising. Any consciousness that does arise simply arises, endures, then ceases. It doesn't remain for long. There's no self there to be found. However, the heart attaches to the seeing as me seeing. This is where the problem lies. When I'm the one who hears, then it's He insulted me. He criticized me. He doesn't like me. That's how the heart will perceive it. So get in and investigate. Hey, where is this me? Who is the one who sees? Who is the one who hears? Who is the one who smells? Perceiving this flavor, that bodily sensation, the mental phenomena that arise, they simply arise, remain, and then cease. But when the heart goes and becomes attached to them, the sense of self comes up as well. See? This is the way to investigate. If we find ourselves liking or disliking something, then consider, is there a self? Is there a me? And who is the one who dislikes? Who is the one who loves and hates? Who's angry? Who's scared? Have a look. We can see into this fact of not-self. If there's enough wisdom present, then we'll be able to let go, and the mind will be empty. This is Tatanga Vimuti, a momentary liberation, a momentary Nibbana. This Nibbana is not far away, okay? It's here in the heart. If we are to see the Dhamma, then we will see Nibbana in the heart. Awakening to the Dhamma, one awakens right here in the heart. Perhaps we've been to India and Nepal to pay homage to the Buddha. With this comes the arising of faith and devotion, of rapture and happiness. But we still need to use the insight of vipassana to reflect, 
This is where the perfectly self-awakened Buddha attained Nibbāna, and the way he attained Nibbāna was by seeing that the body and mind are not self. At first there is the appearance of rapture and happiness. This is an aspect of samatha practice. When we contemplate until the mind unifies and sees that the body and mind are not self, this is the arising of vipassana. In order for the insight of vipassana to arise, we need to rely on samatha, making the mind firmly concentrated. Therefore, we need to try and train the mind in becoming calm. One can watch the in and out breath, or use a meditation word like buddho, or else it's possible to establish mindfulness by internally reciting a chant one is familiar with. The more times one cycles through the chant, the firmer it will become. Finally, after remaining with the meditation object for quite a while, one will feel the mind drop down to merge with buddho. Rapture arises at this point, and it's enough to stay with buddho. There's no need to focus on the breath. Once rapture and calm come about, the Buddha taught to develop vipassana, reflecting that buddho means the one who knows, the one who is awake, the one who is joyful. What did the Buddha know? What had he awoken from? Why was he joyful? Knowing, he knew that the body and mind are not self. He had awoken from upadana, deluded clinging and attachment. And when there are no more defilements, then the heart is joyful. So frequently try to contemplate in this way. But if the investigation doesn't bring clear seeing, then it's essential to let the mind settle first in a state of concentration. We support this by relying on the five precepts as the heart's foundation. Our conduct will thus be virtuous and pleasing to others. We perform acts of giving as a normal part of our life. We care for our precepts as a normal part of our life. We develop meditation, giving rise to mindfulness and firm concentration. This is the path of practice that will lead one to see the Dhamma. When this path unifies, it will be able to destroy a personality view, Sakaya Ditti, skeptical doubt, Vichikicha, an attachment to rituals and practices, Silabhata Paramasa. This attaining to Sotapanna, stream entry, it isn't something difficult. We just need to understand that all things in this world are conventions. There's no self in any of it. This is how it is for a Sotapanna. One's faith in the Buddha's dispensation will be absolutely firm. There will be effort to reach the end of suffering. One will have seen that the entire world is an illusion and that all forms of worldly happiness are inauthentic and unstable. It was like this for Sariputta and Mahamogalana prior to their going forth. They had gone to watch the festivities performed at Mount Kichakuta, celebrations which could go on for an entire month, as was the tradition in India at that time. There was great merrymaking, with everyone dressed up and beautifully ornamented. Sariputta and Mahamogalana each led a retinue of 500 young men, and they all went together to enjoy the festivities. But when the fruits of their past good karma reached full maturity, these two friends became disenchanted. The shows and entertainment now appeared boring and wearisome. There was only degeneration, 
and the inevitability of death. After reflecting in this way, these two venerable ones decided to seek the Dhamma as a means to transcend suffering, and in the end they both attained to the highest stage of enlightenment. So let's all reflect on this. These types of happiness and amusement are not permanent or reliable. When this bodily formation experiences the anguish of degeneration and death, these amusements won't be able to help us. We can't simply amuse ourselves in this world for dukkha, namely aging, sickness and death, awaits us in the future. It's great pain and suffering. Our lives are heading for death with each passing mind moment. At all times, with every fraction of a second, we're forever moving closer, facing the arrival of aging, sickness and death. Reflecting on this will give rise to disenchantment and dispassion for the world. We should all conduct ourselves heedfully, endeavor to cultivate the paramis, the spiritual perfections, practice a lot. Even if we have much work and little time, still we must try to look after our mindfulness throughout the day. Continually applying ourselves to contemplating the Dharma will bring about both tranquility and wisdom. It will allow us to see that our life is uncertain, that death is certain. When this is plainly seen, the heart will become weary and dispassionate. It will be set on Nibbana, freedom from the suffering of endless birth and death. Investigate so as to arrive at emptiness. If you can see this emptiness clearly, just once, you will directly understand the teachings of the Buddha. The heart will be filled with tremendous happiness, and you will know that the highest happiness is that of Nibbana. There is no other happiness which can equal it. When the heart attains to that level of emptiness, the rapture and happiness that appears is overwhelming. If you were to compare it with the happiness found out in the world, this is much more. It's something lasting, something that endures.